Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I was once described as the manager, the mentor, and the visionary who went to the theater with an unfocused dilettante and raised the curtain on a superstar. Hello and welcome to episode 43 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, which was the management rights company renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing their Main Man artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. Was it Aerosmith or something? They said they'd snorted the whole of Bogota or, you know, it was around in those days. And you've got to remember that in those days, it was not so openly spoken about. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included David Bowie, Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mop the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed and Marianne Faithful. Something like LSD, if it wasn't meant to happen. It wouldn't have been invented. In this episode, as Main Man founder Tony DeFries continues with his highlights of 1971, in addition to his ongoing work with David Bowie at the time, DeFries recalls the deals struck 50 years ago with Dana Gillespie, Mick Ronson and Iggy Pop. During this 1971 year, we signed a number of contracts where Jem was the contracting party, and those included a recording agreement with Dana Gillespie, a songwriting and publishing agreement with Dana, a recording agreement with Mick Ronson, and a songwriting agreement with Mick Ronson, a management agreement with Dana, and an Iggy Pop songwriting and sound recording agreement, and a RCA lease tape agreement, that is to say an agreement under which RCA agreed to pay for the recording of certain albums and singles and in exchange got an exclusive right to Bowie's recordings for a period of time in respect of which the masters, the master recordings created would revert to Jam at the end of that licence period, which was, I think, 10 years. So this is ultimately how David managed to recover not only his master recordings of all the albums made in his Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, The Lad Insane, Diamond Dogs, Young Americans, and so on, but his earlier Mercury albums, which... I had arranged to purchase back from Mercury and which I then licensed to RCA. So all of this, including a termination and recording and return of master's agreement, were managed with Mercury by me. So this was, if you like, my legal year in 1971 when I was engaged in a variety of contractual arrangements, which included making a new songwriting agreement, which was really a co-publishing agreement with Chris's Music. That was a company formed by two 
Cambridge University students who started booking acts for the university and then began booking acts for other universities and then realised that they could have a booking agency as a business and began, I think it was originally called Big Ears, believe it or not, the booking agency. (laughs) And then those two friends of mine called Chris Wright and Terry Ellis decided to make a chrysalis, as in the chrysalis of a butterfly, very nicely designed, which featured Chris and Ellis as both of their names, although spelling obviously changed, and turned into Chrysalis Music Publishing and Chrysalis Recording and was very successful. One of their first, if not their first, publishing signings, outside of the acts that they each managed, Jethro Tullin, 10 years after, but I think their first independent writer signing was David, and we did that with a group of UK and US companies, Titanic and Tantric, that were set up so that they would administer the recording, songwriting, publishing rights, and Jem, which became Main Man, and Bowie would share in the ownership of those recordings, recover the ownership of the copyrights in those recordings at a future point. That, again, was quite a unique arrangement for a songwriter who had no significant success, who had had one hit record often perceived as a novelty, which was Space Oddity, and required a level, frankly, of uh, belief, or maybe suspension of disbelief, in how Bowie's future was going to unfold. One of the driving forces of that arrangement was a song called Oh You Pretty Things. David wrote the song as part of a collection of songs that we needed to go and woo, if you like, record companies. Basically, if you're going to try and get a, especially a record deal that is unusual and normally not available to anyone but a very well established artist you need to have something to play them and all we had to play record companies at that point in time were David's previous Mercury or Decca recordings and none of these were going to be of interest to those record companies we needed something new and different so we started recording new songs the Chrysalis deal provided a small advance but it was enough to free David financially at the point and more importantly make it possible for him to not be obliged to carry on with jobs like graphic designing that he didn't enjoy didn't like and he was now in a position probably for the first time in his adult life where he could concentrate on writing songs and not worry about the rent or the groceries or any of the normal things that people have to worry about. This was an astonishing situation for any songwriter to find themselves in. And David began writing some of these very compelling songs. And Are You Pretty Things was one of them. Are You Pretty Things had, on the one hand, it was a hidden message to Mick Jagger, who David was a big admirer of, 
and who had been in a band called The Pretty Things. And this was David doing what a lot of artists did in those days, especially writers, but even recording artists. But Boland did the same thing. Make a record that has a title that sends a message to somebody, ideally another songwriter or, more importantly, another recording artist that you want to send a message to. Whether or not they get the message isn't important. You believe you're sending them a message. So whether Mick ever realised that Oh You Pretty Things was aimed at him, you'd have to ask Mick the question. I never have, but I know that from David's perspective, that's why it was called Oh You Pretty Things. Now, in the meantime, you've got Mark Bolan writing secret messages in his songs to David and David doing the same thing to Mark. And you've got the interesting factor that doesn't occur until much later, but when we do this album of favourite Bowie songs called Pinups, which are all covers, two of those covers are pretty things, songs. It's clear that David's preoccupation with Mick hadn't subsided. (laughs) And of course, by that time, they were friends entangled in a, um, what you could call a strange arrangement, a very strange arrangement of Mick and David over many following years. That's another story. Moving back into 1971, Chrysalis are listening to these songs don't really have any idea what to do with them, except that I hear, before they hear, that Mickey Most, who I'm still in touch with, is planning to make a solo album with Peter Noon, who was the lead singer of Herman's Hermits. Now, Mickey had been very successful with Herman's Hermits, and Peter Noon was open to having a solo career, and Mickey was looking for material. Bob Grace at Chrysalis was looking for someone to record this song since clearly David couldn't put out his own version of the song commercially until we resolved the Mercury contract, which we hadn't yet done. So here we have, early in 71, the opportunity to get one of David's songs covered by, albeit a pop artist, but still an artist with major success and credentials by a record producer. Again, Mickey was more of a pop producer, albeit he'd done House of the Rising Sun with the Animals, but he was a pop producer, but he was also a pop producer with a foot in the rock and roll camp. So this would, uh, would, would score for David in many different ways and would improve his potential future songwriter, if not potential future recording artist values. So everyone would succeed here, provided the record, of course, was a hit. So the question became, how do we get it to Mickey? And will Mickey treat it as a single? Because his real skill, Mickey's real skill, was always finding songs that could be made into hit singles. This is what we needed him to do here. And the story goes that... Because I was off in America exploring the interest of record companies in signing Stevie Wonder and having to do that very much as an undercover operation, that Bob Grace went to Midam. Midam was a sort of 
music festival equivalent of the Cannes Film Festival. It was also held in Cannes, in the same venue as the film festival. And Bob Grace tells the version of his going there with a demo, cornering Mickey, making him listen to the demo, and persuading him to uh, use it for Peace of Noon. My recollection is that I actually spoke to Mickey directly about the song and also arranged for David to actually attend the session. Now, this is where we get to a very interesting place because there's an old saying that says, don't shoot the piano player. This comes from sort of Wild West era in America where where the piano player was often the target of a lot of um, emotional outbursts and wasn't infrequent that the piano player would be shot. So this basically says, if you've got a problem, try and keep it away from the performer. It's not the performer's fault. And even if he's a bad piano player, he doesn't deserve to be shot. When Mickey started recording the song, whoever was on the keyboards at the time had difficulty replicating the demo, which was something that David had played piano on, and they weren't getting it. And Mickey was getting frustrated. Mickey liked to do one-take recordings. He didn't like going over a song over and over again. He expected the song to be ready when he was ready to record it. That was his style, and it worked for him. So Mickey said, let's get David down here. He can play the piano part. So David was duly produced and promptly admitted that he couldn't play the piano. (laughs) And that he'd composed it on a stand-up piano, which was out of tune in the first place, and that he could only play the black keys and couldn't actually play the entire keyboard. And so he literally composed a piano piece, which was just a repetition of a certain set of chords that are not normally found in a keyboard sequence. And so the solution that Mickey adopted was to have David play it once, take that recording and literally repeat it by cutting and slicing and splicing the tape, which is something that nobody's that familiar with today because we don't do that anymore. But in the days of analogue tape recording, it was quite often the case, much as with film, that if you had something you didn't want, you could slice it out and then put the tape back together with the marvellous sticky tape. (laughs) Splicing, it was called. Or you could do something that required a bit more skill but was still very possible, which is take that one piece of tape that had four or six or eight bars of music on and repeat it as many times as you needed and insert it back into the recording. So you literally took the rest of the recording and spliced in this extra piece of tape as many times as you needed and re-recorded the whole thing so now you had what sounded like a perfectly played piano piece, albeit that everybody else had problems going forward playing that piece when they had to play it live. Eventually, people just played a different version of it. For the moment, then, we had a finished record, and we didn't have to shoot the piano player, which was very lucky. 
Whilst he was doing the Mercury tour, the promo tour, he'd met up with various people, and some of them had now come to England as part of the cast of a play called Port. So when I say they met David in the US, in LA, when he was doing his appearances, talking to radio personalities and the press, at least one of these press folk was called Lee Black Childers, who was working as a reporter and photographer for, I think, 16 magazine or one of those fan magazines. Lee was also friendly with Tony Zanetta and Kathy Dorothy or Cherry Vanilla, her other name, and Wayne County, and became one of the people who was hired to do a London performance of a play called Pork. Pork was originally put on as an Andy Warhol production in New York and is the story of a group of characters who were tape recorded by a girl called Bridget Polk, and she becomes Pork. Bridget came from a very well-to-do old American wasp, that's why Anglo-Saxon Protestant (laughs) family, and she knew everybody in the upper social circles of American life. And when the small portable tape recorder, the Sony, came along, she immediately seized one, And when it became possible to record from your phone to that little cassette tape or to hide it on your person and record conversations that people didn't know they were having, she began recording conversations of a highly sexual, indiscreet and very explicit nature with all kinds of people, but mostly people who were part of a certain social set that was often written about, gossiped about. And when she had a bunch of these tapes, she had met Andy, she was part of that Warhol set. She played some of the tapes to Andy, and then she said, look, you can have them if you can do something with them. Andy took the tapes and decided that he would turn them into a play, and he hired a chap called Tony Ingracia to do that. Tony and Gracia then listened to probably hundreds of tapes and isolated bits and created a story around them. And as I say, that story was successfully performed as a play in New York. And then a individual who saw it and was interested in putting it on in London asked Andy, and Andy said, OK, you can have a licence to put it on in London. So he then hired a number of people, Tony Zanetta, Jamie DiCarlo Andrews, Lee Black Childers, Wayne County, and Kathy Dorothy Cherry Vanilla. And all these bizarre, outrageous, transgender and gay and everything in between came to London. <laughs> to do a play that featured nudity and uh, sexual acts and other forbidden topics on stage. And they put it on at the Roundhouse. And it was a sensation, not because of its particular 
artistic qualities, but because of its outrageous qualities. And the cast were then interviewed and photographed. And, of course, at some point, it was noticed that Lee said, I saw this chap in the UK, and I see he's being spoken about here, and he was very pretty. Let's invite him to come and see the show. And duly, we were invited, and so myself and Dana and David and Angela went off to see the show. And afterwards, we went backstage to meet the cast. And that meeting led to my deciding to hire many of those actors and actresses as main man staff the following year. I started working with Z. Almost immediately, he got back to the States. So after a short run in England, Pork went back to America and the staff dispersed. But next time I visited the States, I got in touch with Tony Zanetta and asked him to do some promotional work for us in New York. And at the same time, got him to engage the rest of his contacts in the gay community and theatrical community in spreading the word about Bowie. So that was in place before we signed off on the RCA deal. All of this happened before we got a clear definition from Mercury that they would release David and give back the original recordings in return for a certain payment of all the money that they had spent and not recouped. Once that agreement was confirmed by letter and by telegram and in other forms, we were free to then go and pursue other record companies and the one that we favoured with RCA for three reasons. They had missed the British rock invasion. They'd missed the American rock movement and they'd missed what was turning into a major folk country movement. They had Charlie Rich and they had, of course, Elvis Presley, but they didn't have anything outside of Lou Reed that was going to make a dent in new music, new rock and roll. And they didn't have any kind of Beatles-type act either. They were enormously large as the Radio Corporation of America. They actually owned NBC, which was a one of the only three major networks at that time. They had access to radio stations, TV stations. They owned... Hertz Rent-A-Car, they owned the Whirlpool washing machine business. They were enormous. They had electronics businesses and pressing plants all over the world and lots of money. Plus which they had Elvis Presley, who was still one of the world's leading recording artists and performers. If they could be persuaded that David had the potential to become another Presley... And if they believed that was possible, then they could be induced into signing him. So that was 
my next job, if you like. The third element of RCA was their global presence. So unlike many US record companies who had to work through other companies that they didn't own or control, RCA were largely their own manufacturer, their own pressing plant company, their own shipping and distribution business, and in many cases, their own record stores. This gave them an enormous amount of promotional power if it was properly directed. The biggest problem was lack of A&R, and they had recently hired a younger, newer team of A&R folk headed by Dennis Katz, who was previously an attorney, and featuring people like Bob Ring and Richard Robinson, who were looking at younger and more progressive performers and talent and had signed Lou Reed, believing that they could make something of him from the Velvet Underground, although he was not ultimately a leading figure in the Velvet Underground, but didn't really have any idea how to promote him or how to get him to make the right music. So his first album for them had not done well. Bowie had made a very good impression on one of the RCA folk when he was on his Mercury promo tour. And that was a chap called Tom Ayers. And he was living in California, working with an RCA artist, doing some recordings. And he met David, he was very impressed with him, and he brought the word back to RCA. When Man Who Sold the World came out and got a very favourable review from John Mendelssohn, it also impressed this group at RCA, so that there was a definite level of interest And the key to making that work was to get that interest to spread to the executive reaches of RCA and NBC, because they were ultimately the people who controlled the money. So without them on board, you'd only have another act that was perhaps uh, the favourite of the A&R department. But if you didn't have the distribution folk, the salespeople, the various regional centres, without those people and without the PR side of the record company, you wouldn't have the opportunity to really make a major impact in America. My opinion, which I had expressed to David and to Lawrence, was that if you did not succeed as a songwriter or recording artist, in America, your chances of global success were severely limited. And a great example for David was Mark Bolan did not make it in America. And ultimately, and very sadly, he failed. So David was willing to accept that without an American record company, we could not hope to succeed. He tried with multiple English record companies and they'd all let him down and even the American company he ended up on which was Mercury because they didn't see him as an American commodity he didn't achieve success there and 
ultimately he was subject to the whims of Phillips, which belonged to another conglomerate called Polygram, and therefore didn't have the same interest in promoting him as Mercury might have had. Again, nobody was willing to spend any money on the exercise. My plan with RCA was to create a demand for David in America by making him successful, sought after and famous in the UK and withholding his appearance and his performance in America until he could appear as a headliner. And this ran contrary to all the wisdom of agents and promoters and record companies and everybody else engaged in the music business. It was a completely outrageous idea to suggest that you could take an unknown artist and put them on in America as a headline act. There was no such mechanism. Nobody had ever done it before. So if we could pull it off, it would be spectacular. Well, we did, and it was, and here we are. This meeting with the pork folk was fortuitous in a way because all of a sudden we had an independent group of people who were very widely connected to the sort of New York arts underground scene. And by doing that, we could get a different light to shine on David. And this, of course, ended up with us going to meet Andy and Paul and with a afternoon at the factory followed by a signing with RCA. In essence, this contract gave David and I creative control of what he recorded, what he wrote, how it was packaged, how it was promoted and how it was sold. These were the key elements to making this arrangement work. In September, Bowie and myself and Angela and Mick go to the US. We check into the Warwick, my favourite New York hotel at that point in time, and we arrange to meet at RCA to sign the contract. On the 9th of September, that signing occurs at RCA Records, and they have arranged a dinner at a restaurant called The Ginger Man in New York, which is a very popular, famous restaurant. And we are all invited. That is myself, David, Angela, Z, and Mick, and Lou Reed. Lou declines, doesn't come to dinner. And after dinner, Lisa Robinson, who also is at the dinner, invites everyone to Max's Kansas City. This was a famous uh, New York cafe, nightclub, performance venue, very sleazy, very downtown, very popular with outrageous folk. A lot of the Andy Warhol folk hung out there. And of course, Iggy was a constant visitor, an occasional performer there. When they are at Max's, Danny Fields shows up. Danny Fields was a press agent, promo person, manager, and he is currently hosting, i.e. putting Iggy Pop up in his apartment, 
because Iggy is deep in the throes of methadone treatment trying to recover from a strong addiction to heroin and does this from time to time. It's very much a sort of way of life for Iggy and he explains it all to us later on. But whereas heroin will get you high and excited and give you all kinds of energy, methadone will slow you down and calm you down and relax you so you can do another shot of heroin. This is not how the methadone program, of course, is supposed to work. It's just the way that Iggy chooses to use it. So, of course, it doesn't work and he doesn't get off heroin and he he becomes more of a um, problem. But it is how he explains it to David when they meet. David, of course, is enthralled to hear a real life <laughs> extraordinary drug addicts explain the mechanics of conquering whilst still maintaining addiction. That doesn't happen right away. This comes later. But what does happen right away is Lisa Robinson introduces Danny Fields to David. Danny's thrilled because he's heard about David and had met him before. And then Lisa says, you know, Danny's friends with Iggy and he's Iggy's manager right now. And would you like to meet Iggy? And David says, yes, I'd love to meet Iggy. So Danny goes off to the phone, and because nobody had phones in those days, you had to go and get the phone from the bar. And he calls his apartment and he tells Iggy, he must come down to Max's right away and meet this person. And Iggy's never heard of David Bowie, and he's busy watching an old black and white movie on TV called Mr. Deeds Goes to Washington. It's a classic. And so he doesn't want to stop watching it. So he says, OK, I'll come down. But then he carries on watching the movie and eventually he shows up at Max's and he is obviously in terrible shape. But he's very full of energy. Probably has done some H before he arrived. So he's full of energy. He jumps on people's tables to get to our table. Max is very small, it ended up with lots of tables being crushed together, so he just skips over the tables to everybody's horror. David, of course, delighted. Iggy's <laughs> actually performing for him already, and Iggy is wearing literally cut-off shorts with a hole in the backside and a horrible T-shirt and looks like a down-and-out. But we meet, and I say to him, if you want to talk about doing something with us, come to the Warwick and have breakfast tomorrow morning. And Iggy says he will. And he and Danny go off and we carry on the Max's experience. David's not really getting a lot of attention at this point. A little, but not a lot. But people are aware that there's some strange English freak person here they haven't seen before so there's a certain buzz going on and of course later on that turns into literally hundreds of people who remember seeing David at Max's Kansas City that night remember Max's Kansas City probably had a maximum occupation of less than 100 people even if they were standing on each other's shoulders a tiny place and so this is one of those stories that has become elevated to folklore where 
people say, I was there. <laughs> because somebody who was there told them what it was like. Um, and it's an interesting way to look back and see how does an obscure person become famous? When they're famous, they're no longer obscure. So what kind of people remember? And that sort of, I remember when, becomes its own folk story, its own legend, and helps the famous person to get more famous, actually, at the end of the day. Helps David's fame to grow every time somebody says, oh, I was at that concert that David did it, or I was in the bar that night when he was there, and so on and so on. So it does lead to legends, but it can also lead to a lot of confusion about what really happened because there's this mist of memories that are often occluded by real facts. Here we are, back at the Warwick the next morning. Iggy, Judy shows up. Z's already there. I'm in a suite and I'm talking to David and Angela. And I think Mick's there as well. And Iggy comes in and we offer him breakfast and he orders six consecutive breakfasts, which he eats. He obviously hadn't eaten for a while. <laughs> He's in the same horrible outfit. And he, this is when he delivers the recipe for doing heroin and methadone because methadone was provided free by the city if you were a heroin addict. And then as long as you were doing the methadone, you could still get supplies of heroin and manage this uh, dance with the devil that Iggy is busy describing and David is totally engrossed and fascinated. And after Iggy leaves, he says, shall we sign him up? And I said, could be interesting. I mean, I've spoken to James now for a while and he's quite, you know, Iggy's really James Osterberg Jr. I always called him James. He's quite lucid and even erudite on some topics when he wants to be and ultimately he can discuss intellectual subjects whilst at the same time being a complete raving lunatic so there's a definite how would you say almost angelic quality about James Iggy he's very first of all he's very tiny he's small way smaller than David who's not very tall either and he has this almost Peter Pan-like quality. He's all in proportion, just the way that Steve McQueen was when I met him. People always look larger when they're fully proportioned. Duffy once told me that as a photographer. If you get a model who's got, doesn't matter male or female, but a, a subject that's got all the right proportions, they will look much larger in the picture than they really are because the camera sees perfect image and the perfect image is much more impressive and this happens on stage too so Iggy on stage is this tiny tiny figure a little toy person and yet he looks enormous he looks intimidating and threatening <laughs> and he's, he's not but he can come across that way so it was quite interesting to think okay he does have definitely possibilities He's got a reputation. Let's explore what he can do. So I get contracts prepared and we sign him up. A few days later, he's signed up and he becomes 
at that point a gem artist, but later on a main man artist. And we planned to bring him to London with his songwriting companion, who's also one of the Stooges, James Williamson, and we duly do. And then that's another, obviously, another long story in that space. Tony DeFries casting his mind back 50 years and recalling some of the highlights of 1971, finishing up there with the time he met and signed Iggy Pop. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including photographs, articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we're adding to the main man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history and you'll find it at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. <laughs>